In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hello, I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and welcome to the Voices of King, a 13-part podcast from the AJC. Originally recorded in 2008 for a short documentary, we sat down with 13 people who were close to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in life and in death. This podcast was originally released in 2018 to mark the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's death. Now, as we move into a new era, we're revisiting these important interviews to give you a glimpse inside the making of history. We were proud to document these conversations then, and we are proud to present them to you today. He went on to defy those who sought to kill him. I'm not fearing any man. I ran to the car, what happened, what happened? And when I turn around, then I can see. All I was thinking about was, Lord, don't let him die. You know, don't let him die, don't let him die. Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis, Tennessee. I don't go back there. I've been there, but I haven't been there. There's nothing there that I want to remember, really. Why King? Why the Prince of Peace? That was going through my mind. This man, this one man, he taught us how to live, and he taught us how to die. This is The Voices of King, a podcast of 13 voices, 13 people who bore witness to the last days of the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., as told to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ryan Horn. Zernona Clayton has always been the King Whisperer. Whether she was throwing a surprise party for a reluctant Martin Luther King Jr. three months before his death, or without a cent to her name, trudging to a local dress shop to secure dresses for Coretta Scott King to wear for her husband's funeral, it seemed fitting that it was Clayton who stood in front of King's body at Spelman College's Sisters Chapel and helped prepare King's body to be seen. Former AJC reporter Jim Mooney conducted the interview. Zernona Clayton's um, husband was the, I forget whether he was a publisher or editor of Jet Magazine, but he was a high publishing guy. And, had, and, and they had become friends with King through the civil rights activities, and they moved to Atlanta uh, in 1965, I think, to help with uh, the SCLC and to sort of help them with media, uh, their media push. And um, not long after that, her husband, Zernona's husband, died, but she stayed close to the Kings. And uh, as she was sort of forging her own media career and became sort of a pioneer in TV in Atlanta uh, and with Turner Broadcasting, um, she she was close with the Kings, and so when the assassination happened, she talked about how she was having dinner uh, with a grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan at the Atlanta Marriott. She was involved in a sort of outreach thing there 
with the uh, with the Klan at the time. So it was kind of ironic that she found out that you know he had been shot uh, during this thing, but uh, during this meeting. But she went immediately to the King House. I'm Zernona Clayton. I moved to Atlanta in 1965 as an invitation from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, to join the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and I've been here ever since. Did you work for the SCLC yourself? Mm -hmm. I did. That's how I got here. What did you do for the SCLC? Everything. <laughs> um, you know, what was interesting, I was, um, our first husband was invited here um, a year before this. Um, no, he came in 63 and helped with the March on Washington. Uh, but he was um, an editor of Jet Magazine and had not planned to come here permanently because he was doing pretty well income-wise and SLC had no money. But uh, Dr. King wanted him very badly, so he said, well, come down for six months. And uh, Ed came down for six months. We were living in Los Angeles at the time. And uh, he came with six months, he said, you're not leaving, uh, because he helped him with speeches and set up public relations. In the meantime, Coretta had wanted to do something to raise funds for the uh, SCLC. So my husband helped draft her uh, concert tours, and he said, my wife can help you, you know, from California. So I traveled with her from my California home. And uh, so between her wanting me to come and work full-time with her tours, and Martin wanted Ed to come here to work with him full-time. We were, of course, into coming. So that's how we came. Uh, he to work with public relations, and I was to uh, travel with Coretta. But she didn't travel all the time, so I said, in the meantime, uh, I would help in the office doing special events for him, special dignitaries when they come, host them. And then it turned out, he said, Boy, she can do everything, and they gave me everything to do. So it was wonderful. So I moved, um, well, we made the official move, my husband and I, in 1965. And of course, he died right after we moved here. So I just remained and was active with uh, SCLC and the King family with the children uh, on a personal way for all those years. I've read in your memoir that you took Dr. King to the airport that last time he flew to Memphis, the last time he left Atlanta. What kind of mood was Dr. King in those days? Well, it was very interesting. He was uh, very down because it was the first time, you know, this was his second trip to Memphis. He had been down there a few weeks before this and had staged a march, the same march he was now planning to restage. But violence took place on the march and a person was um, shot and killed. And of course that really disturbed him because he said it was the first time they had real violence on those kinds of marches. And so he was um, feeling the sense of, you know, the country is really, you know, changing. And we're not sure that uh, we're gonna proceed with a lot of the planned activities because I think the mood in the country is of such we're not sure that we'll be able to pursue some of the rights we've been fighting for, and proceed with some of the activities. So he was kind of down. But what happened is, that was his mood. But as, when I went to the house to pick him up, uh, the boys who never, ever bothered about his leaving, because they were so accustomed to his leaving, going to the airport all the time, that uh, they thought this was another normal occasion. They will say, bye, Daddy. But that didn't happen. 
As we were leaving the house, when Dr. King picked up his briefcase, the boys grabbed his briefcase and said, no, Daddy, don't go. Don't leave us. And he said, well, I'll be back. They hung onto his coattail, followed us out the front door, almost screaming, Daddy, please don't leave us. And he said, but I'll be back. And this persisted until we got down the steps. They hugged him around the legs to drag him, still pleading, don't leave us, don't go, both of them. And we went on down the steps, we got to the car. He was struggling because they had a, you know, a grip on him that was you know, negating his movement. He got to the car, he opened the door, they slammed the door. No, Daddy, don't leave us. Please, Daddy, don't leave us. And he said, but I'm coming back. And he finally managed to close the door. Then they jumped on the hood of my car and said, Daddy, we don't want you to leave us. Please don't leave us. Well, that had never, ever happened. So when we pulled out of the driveway, he said, my gosh, I've never seen this before. Have you? And I said, oh, no, they see you coming and going all the time. So this was, would normally be a natural occurrence that he's leaving again. Well, he switched then to that feeling like, oh boy, this is painful today to see those boys plead like that. He said, you know what? I think it must be saying to me that they're missing me more. And so now I've got to do something about this. He said, when I come back, I'm gonna just shut down and just spend more time with them because obviously they're feeling a need to have me there more. So we spent a good deal of the travel time talking about how difficult, how unusual, how rare this was. And um, of course, you know, as things developed, we took a retrospective view that obviously they felt something that they hadn't felt before because their behavior was different. So we ended up talking about that. But he also uh, said to me that uh, he was concerned about Memphis, he was concerned about the mood of the country, and he told me something that people today really dispute. He told me that he didn't think he was going to follow through on the Poor People's Campaign. And he would said that to me twice, that he said the mood of the country was of such now that they, he didn't think that they were ready. And so when he came back, he was going to change his plans. He was going to take Coretta, they were going to go to India, spend a year and kind of cleanse their heads and their thoughts and rethink the whole thing of what they would do next. Because he's convinced now that with the mood, this Memphis action, the children's pleading, he was not getting a good feeling about where he was planning to go when he got back. He said, when I come back, I'm planning to change my strategy. Uh, now, there are those who said that he never would have entertained the thought of not following through the campaign, but he convinced me that day that he was going to change. But we had a funny moment. Um, I never marched. I helped stage the marches. I helped organize the marches. I did all the grudge work that marches need for preparation. But when time came to step off, I wasn't there. And he said, are you going to march now? I said, no. And he said, why not? I said, I'll go next time. He said, why not? And I said, well, I don't have any tennis shoes. And he said, oh, we can arrange that. And then he, I, he said, when are you going to march this time? I said, no. 
And I said, and I don't think I want to go to jail. I said, every time as I was, the first, this was kind of like in the early stages, I said, when I, before I moved to Atlanta, I said, I heard every time there was a march, they threw all of you in jail, and I don't want to go to jail. And uh, I said, they don't have room service in jail, and we laughed it off. And then um, that was kind of like the story we took all the time, like next time, next time. But that morning on the way to the airport, he said, you know, by the way, when are you going to march? And I said, well, you know, Martin, your marches are designed to make life better. Marches are designed to improve the lives of those of us who have been deprived. And I said, in a way, I have worked with school dropouts and had a phenomenal rate of getting 82 children out of 100 back into school, which was a phenomenal rate of success. I broke the color barrier by going into television when nobody else had done that. And I said to him, in a sense, I've been marching all the time. And incidentally, I wrote a book and I entitled Marching All the Time. And, but he said to me, and he laughed, he said, but you know what, you really have done good work. And I said, oh, so you're giving me a vote of confidence now, maybe I can still not march again. And we laughed it off, but I ended up marching uh, at the funeral. I marched um, from the church. Uh, no big deal, but I did march. Uh, as a matter of fact, Mrs. King said to me when we were uh, in her private uh, bedroom when she was planning uh, the activities for the funeral, she said, I want to march. And then she looked at me and I said, yes, I will march. But I ended up marching. And I say that with um, honesty and openness today because I'm annoyed when everybody tells you they all march with him. I have to arrange those marches. I was the one who had to call celebrities to get them because we were such a celebrity-driven society that they always added to the allure um, and the attraction of marches. And I called many celebrities and they were all sick that day, or wouldn't come down. And a lot of people didn't march, but now it's so fashionable, it's so okay now to say they march. And I will not misrepresent the truth. I did lots of things, but I did not march, and I said with honesty, but I did a lot of things uh, from his direction to make the things go smoothly. Where, on the night that he was shot, uh, where were you? When I got the news, I was sitting in the Marriott Hotel in Atlanta, uh, talking to Calvin Craig, the Grand Dragon with the Ku Klux Klan. And we talked about a couple of things. One was um, the data I had secured for him to meet Dr. King. The other was we had been working in the neighborhood of um, the Atlanta Stadium. It was a model cities program where we got uh, mixed communities to work together. And I had been successful in getting the labor commissioner to hire the people from the street. Uh, who wanted jobs. Many of them had um, um, backgrounds that uh, negated their, you know, getting employment. And um, I was telling him I had been successful in getting the uh, Labor Commission to hire them, and so we were happy about that. He was happy about my um, getting a date for Dr. King. While we were there talking, the maitre d' of the hotel um, of the restaurant came over and slipped me a note because everybody in town knew I was close to the Kings. And she slipped me a note, and I saw the note said, did you hear about Dr. King? And I just folded the note and kept talking. Uh, because what had happened earlier that day, I talked to Dr. King about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. 
and he was fine, everything was going well. Um, so I didn't think anything which, when the question was, did you hear about him? And then um, she thought that was strange behavior. She told me later that she thought it, when she'd heard that I was so calm and cavalier about it all, she came back a second time. She said, I hate to interrupt, but I want you to know that we heard Dr. King got shot. And, and I still calmly said, oh, okay. Well, what she didn't know is I had been in his presence three times when we'd gotten notice that he had been killed. Uh, we were sitting, just to give you one example, we were in Los Angeles one night uh, having dinner in his suite, uh, several of us, um, and there was a man in Los Angeles who had already made it known to the media that he had 10 sticks of dynamite because he heard Dr. King was coming to town and this time he's going to get him. And while we were there having dinner, having lots of laughter, uh, the news came on that we heard that uh, the man with the dynamite did successfully get Dr. King. We're trying to verify the story. And, you know, there we were. So it didn't happen. And so since I had talked to him that afternoon and everything was fine, I don't know why I thought you can, you know, be killed, you know, four hours later. But anyway, I didn't react because I, I'd been there before. But finally she said, you know, why don't you check it out? And I thought, I better go to the phone. Which is the telephone, and they had two private numbers, and both of them were busy, which was unusual. And I said, maybe I'd better, you know, check this further. So I decided to go over uh, to the house, which was not far from downtown where I was, five minutes away. Well, when I got to her driveway, Mrs. King was in the police car with the mayor. Uh, they were backing out, and she yelled, Oh my gosh, I've been trying to find you. Uh, she said, um, Something has happened to Martin, and I'm I've got to go to Memphis, and when you check on the kids, now her housekeeper, of course, and the staff was there, but she wanted to be sure since she didn't know, because see, they hadn't told her anything except that he had been shot and it was pretty serious. That was all she knew. And so she just thought she'd better go. And um, when she said, so will you just check on the children for me, you know? And I said, of course. And uh, so she knew they'd be comfortable, you know, with me. And I said, fine, well, as soon as I got in the house and, you know, trying to find where the children were, um, she at the same time had gotten the message at the airport uh, that he, in fact, had died and was, you know, there was no need for her to go right then. So she turned around and came home. And then uh, she asked me to check on Daddy King and Mama King. What also happened um, earlier on that ride to the airport he and I were talking about, I told him about his mother's desires. We had spent the day before in Mrs. King's home, uh, and I said her home, she was recuperating from an illness. And um, we kind of gathered at the home, laughing, having dinner, playing the piano, singing, having a wonderful time, his mother, his wife, and I, um, and he, were having a wonderful afternoon. When I went home that night, uh, Mama King is what we called her. She called me, she said, listen, tell Martin, I know you're gonna drive him to the airport, but tell him uh, to see if we can have more sessions like today. I enjoyed that so much and I know, you know how mothers are, he knows that I'm with him all the time, but I want some more private time with him. So I said, I'll make it happen. So on the way to the airport, I said to him, you're gonna 
I'm going to see to it that your schedule is going to be an appointment to visit with your mother. And he laughed. I said, you know, mothers understand, but we're going to make it happen. We're going to have another day like yesterday. He said, okay. And what happened is that day on April 4th, he called his mother um, in the afternoon, which he'd never done. Talked to her about 45 minutes on the telephone. So now when I went over to see how they were doing, through her tears she said to me, I think when my initial pain is over, I'm going to be eternally grateful to you because it was you who made him think uh, to put me on his schedule and he called me today and spoke for 45 minutes. So according to the times, he was one, she was one of the last persons he talked to according to um, the clock. So she felt very good about that. When, when, <coughs> when did you find out that he had died? Only after Mrs. King came back from the airport. What went through your head? Describe what you were feeling and thinking. Well, let me tell you, it, 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 it's a numbness that you can't describe, but let me tell you, there was so much going on that I didn't have time to evaluate anything. When she walked into the door, of course, the phones were ringing, there were people there, and other people had heard the news, and the house was filled with uh, friends and well-wishers, I mean, not well-wishers, but friends, um, immediately. And so she wanted to go to the privacy of her bedroom, and she didn't want anybody to go with her but me, so I went with her. And in about five minutes after we got to the bedroom, um, the instructions were to the people up front who were manning the phones that, you know, let her know who's calling before she would take calls. But she wanted privacy. But what happened then is five minutes after we got into her bedroom, Yolanda, the oldest child, came in. She had been out. She heard the news and she came in. She came right to her mother's bedroom. And Coretta and I were sitting on the bedroom together. Um, and she was holding me tightly, but when Yolanda came in, I moved. They sat there and embraced. And Yolanda said to her mother, we're not gonna cry because we're big girls. He wouldn't want us to cry. And she said, you're right. Both of them were bawling. First time I'd ever seen Coretta lose composure because she was such a composed woman. I've never seen tears quite like the two of them had. Um, said, Daddy did, wouldn't want us to cry, and we're not going to cry. You're going to miss him because he was your husband a lot longer than he was my daddy. But we both loved him the same. And so we're going to get through this, and we're not going to cry. We're going to embrace each other, hold each other up, and we're not going to shed a tear. We're going to face it like the big girls we are. She was doing all the talking, and they were both just crying. Well, need I tell you that the phones were just ringing. The President of the United States called, the Senators called, everybody. And she hadn't heard, she couldn't get through to her family. Her mother didn't know. So she was torn between trying to get a line clear to call her mother and father. She had a sister in Pennsylvania, and she was so worried that her family didn't know, because I'm sure, like everybody knew at the time, that a lot of rumors were rampant. Some said he'd killed, some said no, you know. So she wanted them to know, and so she said to me, will you go to your house and make the calls for me? I started out the door and 
didn't get married. She said, well, but I don't want you to leave me, so, you know, couldn't do all that. But I must tell you, the series of calls that came in, that night was so memorable, not through my own grief, and that's why I didn't have a chance to evaluate how I felt so much was happening. Everybody was called with the same kind of message. You know, there's a thread of continuity that runs through everybody's message at that time. If we can do anything, let us know. I'm so sorry. Call me if you need me, if I can do anything. And everybody said that. The call that was different was from uh, Bobby Kennedy. Uh, Bobby Kennedy said, um, Mrs. King, it's obvious that you don't have enough telephone lines because we've been trying to reach you since 6 o'clock. This point is about 10. He said, we haven't been able to get through. So Mr. I don't remember the name, I'll just, a fictitious name, Mr. John Smith from AT&T is en route to Atlanta. He'll be there about 1 o'clock to install telephone lines for you. We heard on the news that you would like to go and pick up your husband. So we have a plane waiting for you now. He's at the Atlanta airport, uh, hangar number three, tailgate number one, two, three, four. The pilot's name is John. Here's the phone number. Call him if you want to go. Have as her known as he had asked her who her contact would be, and she said I would be the official representative. Said, well, have Miss Clayton call every general manager in Atlanta and tell them to tie up every room in the city until she gets back to them. Don't let anybody book a room. My staff is en route because you don't know the protocol like we have because we've had the experience. So we have a team of 12 people who are en route that will be housed and named the location. I've never seen any organization come off like that. He'd rattle all the things that were going to happen. Not call me if you need me, but here's what happened. It's shown about 1 o'clock, the doorbell rang, and the man came in and installed six new telephone lines. Uh, I was so impressed by all that. Everything he said he was going to do, he never once said if you need me. The plane was there. The telephones were there. The staff was there. The hotel rooms were tied up getting the organization that was necessary. And I know I've jumped some in my order of my story, but uh, the answer that I wanted to give you is that so many things were happening that you don't have time to evaluate how you're feeling. The other poignant moment was Coretta had to tell her children and she didn't want anybody to tell them. She said when they you know, put them to bed and that at a propitious moment, she would relate to them what happened. She didn't want anybody to tell them. So they were in the bedroom, the three younger children, Yolanda had already come, as I told you. So she asked me to come go in the bedroom with them, with her. Well, the little one, uh, Bernice, was only four, I think. Um, she didn't understand, so she just told her, you know. Dexter, who was a little older, and I think he was about seven-ish, um, she told him that he was hurt. She couldn't bring the truth. She just said he was hurt. And she and he said, was he hurt badly? She said, yeah, pretty badly. He said, well, if he's hurt that badly, why are you still here? You and Daddy always did things together. Why wouldn't you be with him? And he was agitated that she was here and Daddy is hurt somewhere. She said, well, he's hurt so badly that he's really not coming back. We'll go get him together. And that was the best she could say to him. Then Martin was the last one she went to. 
So she told him, because he was nine-ish, I guess. I, I've forgotten these ages. Uh, but he understood, and she said, you know, your daddy, you know, there are a lot of bad people in the world, and uh, one of them hurt our, your dad, hurt him so badly that, you know, he's not coming back. And so he asked her the question, well, Mom, uh, what will I say to my friends tomorrow at school? And so she said, well, I don't think you have to worry about that because you're not going to school. He was lying down and she was rubbing his back and as she was talking to him and rubbing his arms and all. And he jumped up and he said, not going to school. She said, no. He said, oh, well, my teacher, and he gave the teacher's name. He said, she won't understand. She said, oh, I think she'll understand. Oh, no, 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 you don't know my teacher. She never understands if you miss school. And I chuckled later and I said, I want to meet his teacher because she said, you're not <laughs> cutting these classes, you know. Uh, but he was concerned about going to school. But Mrs. King had a death grip on my arm. And she stood there, though, and told the children such devastating finality to their dad's presence that he wouldn't be coming back. And it was so hard for her to say it, but she got it out um, with the children. So all of that was going through. When we come back, Clayton describes how she helped Coretta Scott King before the funeral. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. I'm Ernie Suggs. And I'm Ned Ravone. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Welcome back to the Voices of King. We continue with the 2008 interview with Zanona Clayton. You helped Mrs. King pull together her clothes for the funeral. About going to Davison's after hours to uh, to get the funeral veil. Uh, tell us about that. We immediately had to go into planning after this moment. She had appearances to make. She had traveling to do. She, you know, people would come to see her, and I just said, uh, "Well, I'll get your clothes together for you." So she said, "Good." But then I said, "Also, what about your headdress? What would you want for the funeral?" And I'll make that happen as well. And she said, "Well, I don't want to look like Jacqueline Kennedy, but I do want something." Uh, to shade my face, so whatever you decide. And I said, okay, let me just take it from there. I took a hat out of her closet I knew was a flattering uh, hat on her face, and I just made the decision to take that hat because I liked it on her, and Martin liked it on her. And so I called uh, Davison's, which was now the predecessor to what we know now as Macy's, and I called, uh, it was getting close to closing time uh, by the time I got around to making that call. 
and I told them what I wanted, that I was going to design Mrs. King's uh, headdress and veil, and I wanted their assistance. The manager got on the phone, he said, um, we will do everything we can to help. And I said, I don't think I can get there before closing time. He said, doesn't matter. Um, do you know where the back door is? And I laughed. I said, oh, yes, I do. <laughs> he said, well, if you use the back entrance, we'll have somebody there to receive you. And we'll have all the millinery staff on duty. And why did you know so well why the, where the back door today was closed? <clears throat> Almost all black people knew where the back doors were in those days. But uh, Davison's had not been one of the stores that had the front door open. Um, uh, in theory, nor in fact. Um, it did open, and I have to say that it was Mrs. King who took me to uh, the Walnut Room, which was their finest restaurant. Uh, after it opened, uh, opened up to Blacks, we went there, and she took me there uh, for lunch. But um, it was kind of a moment to, to say that kind of flippantly, oh yes, I know the black back door. But we, you know, we've been through the back doors so many times in America, not just Davidson's. Back doors were the only doors we could use. But I have to say that they had the whole millinery staff there. I kind of sketched out what I thought I wanted. I, I didn't know anything about designing anything, but I thought I knew what I wanted. And I said, this is what I think I want. Um, and so if you'll just take this hat and build around it, and then I'll take it to her uh, and see what she thinks, and then we'll go from there. Um, but also, while I was doing that, I went to a store that's no longer in existence, but it was next door to Davison's. It was a little small boutique. They had very lovely designer-type clothes. I wanted very much to have Mrs. King look good. All the eyes of the world were on her, would be on her. And so I took the risk of buying her the best clothes. But I walked into the store and I said to the owner that what my mission was, that I didn't bother Mrs. King with a credit card and I didn't have any money, but I wanted this for her. And I picked out about $3,000 worth of clothes and told him I would bring his money back. I walked out of the store with the clothes, got to the house, in the front door uh, of the living room were Harry Belafonte and two of Dr. King's closest friends, very wealthy men, white men from New York. And I told them I had just spent $3,000 because I wanted Mrs. King to look good and they said, we do too. We know you would know and it doesn't matter what you buy. And they gave me three credit cards. Take these cards and buy whatever you need. And what was really kind of interesting is I took the credit cards, went back down there uh, to pay him, and he said, you've got a zero balance. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I'm white. And I think every white person in America has to assume some of this blame, that we live in a society where we allow people like this to kill a man like that. So that's the least I can do, is wipe your balance. And so the clothes were you know, donated. You were uh, 
you were with Mrs. King when y'all went to go visit to, to, to view the body for the first time. Uh, tell us about that. The day he was ready for viewing was a rainy day. It was a drizzle day over at Morehouse, I mean, uh, Spelman College. He was laid in uh, Sister's Chapel at Spelman College. And it was to start at a certain time, I think 10, I'm not sure. But at the same time, we were over at the church making final arrangements for the program and running late uh, for the 10 o'clock opening uh, for people to view. The lines were long and somebody called over to Mrs. King and said, gee, these people are wet. It's raining, the lines are long. Can we uh, open the doors uh, for viewing? And she said, oh, I feel so sorry. So maybe should, and I said, no, you should see him first. They're, they will wait. They'll be willing to wait, but you should see him first. To fast forward my story, she thanked me later, because let me tell you what happened. So they did uh, agree to, to hold the audience back, uh, the viewers back until we got there. The only people present other than family were, um, I was there, the Belafontes were there, um, and the rest were family members. Um, I stood back as Mrs. King viewed the body, but I could see that when they opened that casket, he looked awful. Awful meaning there was a big blob on his um, right cheek, red like the red clay of Georgia. Pretty unsightly. Well, I felt so pained by the way he looked. And I eased over to the mortician and just asked him very quietly, sir, is there anything you can do about his jaw? And he was so crash. He said, mess, his jaw was blown off and this is clay, this is the best we could do. Well, I felt very badly that he decided to respond to me in that way. But my husband had just died several months before this. And I remember when I went to view him, um, I didn't like the way he looked and the mortician said, well, you know, this is our craft and we want you to be pleased. So if you'll give us an opportunity to correct what, what, it, what I said was my problem, uh, we'll take you home and bring you back a little later. Well, they did. They called me back in like 45 minutes, about an hour. And they had changed what I considered, you know, a flaw in the way he looked. I said, I want him to look more natural. And whatever they did, they did something. Well, I knew then that while I didn't know what it was, I knew from a craftsman point of view, something could be done. But he just lashed out and all oh, it was so painful. Well, I was watching Mrs. King because I didn't want to be doing the wrong thing, but I just said, you know, we can't have him looking like this. And I figured there's something maybe I can do. Well, sitting on the f first uh, bench was Mama King, who was Martin Luther King's mother. That was her name, we called her Mama King. And she's dark-skinned. And then I looked at Belafonte's wife, who was white, and I asked, do they have any powder? 
and I asked Mama, can you have loose powder? She said, oh yes. So I said, may I have your powder? Then I asked Julie, did she have powder? She said, yes. So I took their powders and mixed up a little roux and Belafonte was standing there watching me and we put his napkin, I mean his handkerchief around Martin's neck and I proceeded to tone this down with the powder that I'd mixed up and it made such a difference and Coretta smiled and Belafonte said, oh boy, this decision, I would brush it off as I would uh, put too much or trying to make it. And it blended more evenly with the rest of his face. And it made such a difference. And, uh, you know, they applauded me for doing it, but I figured we had to do something. And then I repeated that at midnight. And they moved him over to Ebenezer Church for the viewing man that was to take place after midnight. And I did my little mixture again and did that and it kind of eased the pain a little bit just because you don't want to see your loved one look any worse than natural and of course he had um, had the blob he didn't he didn't have to do that but I did the best I could with a bad situation I'm just curious who was the funeral home do you remember I didn't hear you. the funeral home well I don't I don't want to be the one to identify you can find that out <laughs> But uh, I can tell you this, it was a member of Ebenezer Church and uh, Daddy King was such a loyalist, he wanted to give the business to his member. But I'll have you know that every mortician in this country, we had the president of the National Association of Mortuaries, I think that was the name of the organization, that's an organization of black morticians. They called me and asked me if they could come down. They had about five of them who were the best in the business, offered to pay their own way to come down here to do the job, they said, because we want him to look good. They offered. They called several days, I mean, several times, but we couldn't get Dr. Uh, Daddy King to agree. So when they did see him, uh, although I had made some improvements, it was not perfect in the eyes of a mortician. What are your most vivid memories of the funeral and the funeral procession themselves? <clears throat> Two things went through my mind. We saw Jacqueline Kennedy come in, a widow who had just had the same pain. As a matter of fact, when I was there, when she came to visit Mrs. King at her home, um, seeing those two widows with such similarities, um, the famed coming through, the poor people who were in line, the white people who looked homeless, poor people who looked like vagrants, people whose names you knew, uh, dignitaries whose names you didn't know but you knew they had the pomp. And then I said, this is the picture of the Martin Luther King's work that he would want all people to come together. And here they are today. I mean, you had, um, you know, people used to think that all poor people were black people, but you had black, shabby-looking white people who were there just to pay their respects. 
And so all people came together, the highs and the lows. So that was my thought because I was sitting, uh, well, I had to see the lines as they were um, waiting, you know, both at the school and at the church. Um, and then I went in myself just to sit down in the church for my own private moment. Um, so I got a chance to see everybody. And one of my, the thoughts is some of those celebrities I had called who couldn't come to march were there in the dignitary section. And I was a little annoyed by that. A lot of cities exploded in violence in the days after King was assassinated, but, but not Atlanta. Why do you think Atlanta stayed, for the most part, peaceful during that period? One was the mayor. Ivan Allen just said to the city, we're going to be peaceful. We're going to live out his death as we would want us to do in his lifetime, peacefully, with peace. And that like, came from on a high, high meaning he was the highest office of the city. But he did a lot of things to back it up. He didn't just make a statement. There were white churches downtown. He said, we don't want people to pay for anything. If people are coming here, we don't want anybody to pay for food. The airport served people free. White churches downtown, the white populace came together to say, you know, we're sorry it happened, but we're not the ones. We're going to come together you know, at this moment. We may not have done it so well in his lifetime, but in his going home, we're going to show that we could do it. So the white churches downtown brought cots for people to sleep in, because all the hotels were full. There was no room to be had. And um, so the churches had food going 24 hours a day. But then you'll be interested to know that one of the problems we had that was building was down near the Atlanta Stadium. The police told me this, that uh, the story had broken about our relationship, me and Calvin Craig. That had been a big story. The Constitution had a big story on our coming together, uh, Calvin Craig and I. It was such an unusual uh, union. Um, but they came and told me, said, I've got a story to tell you. He said, what? He said, we had trouble brewing down at Atlanta Stadium, but guess who quelled the storm? He said, oh, Calvin Craig. He went down there. They started a fire, and they were getting ready to riot. He made them put it out and made everybody go home. That was kind of an ironic story, that the Grand Dragon now is quelling the storm. <laughs> These were white people down there? Who yes, were blacks and whites together. Blacks and whites, mm -hmm. OK. Uh, one of the things I ran across in reading the coverage from that week was <coughs> one of the rare bits of violence that did happen in Atlanta was a vandalism of a Ku Klux Klan office on Stewart Avenue. Was that Mr. Craig's by any chance, or no, was that no, no, something no. else? No, uh -uh. no. OK. He, he was already past that then. I yes. Mm -hmm. Were you aware of any behind-the-scenes efforts to keep Atlanta peaceful uh, beyond the city government and the police? I mean, for instance, uh, the SCLC, the Civil Rights uh, Inner Circle, were there any efforts to try to make sure that it stayed nonviolent? I think at that point everybody was working hard to say that we're going to make this a beautiful moment, beautiful meeting. Uh, to have violence uh, in his hometown would be such desecration. I, 
I didn't have time to talk to folk, but I think that was kind of the mood that we're not going to have it. You know, that he's here trying to go home peacefully. Let's make it happen uh, that this represents his life. And so in death, he'll have peace. Um, when you did, uh, when I did have a chance to talk to people, it seemed to have been like, you know, we just, we don't want it to happen here. But the mayor was so instrumental. I mean, he rode the streets all night. The policemen uh, were everywhere all night, 24 hours a day. It was just a beautiful spirit of let's keep it together. Some people I've talked to regard this as, as one of the defining moments of modern Atlanta. Do you, do you see it that way? Yes. Well, we'd had an, another one, I think, was uh, probably just as graphic as when he got the Nobel Prize. You remember um, this city did not want to honor him. And it was people like um, this institution right here. Ralph McGill took a, a leadership role in that, and the rabbis and a few other corporate leaders and the, with the mayor's direction that, no, we cannot not honor him. And so there was a great um, concerted effort to see to we're not going to pay honor to him. You know, he's black, we don't have to do it. And so the whites got together and said, oh, we are going to do it. So leadership uh, of a few people came together and said, we must do it. And to me, that was a great defining moment that um, they paid him the kind of honor he, he was due in his own hometown. And knowing that when they said, no, we're not going to, uh, they, the other side said, well, somebody's got to stand up. So those who were willing to stand up stood up and had a sold-out dinner here at the Dinkler Plaza at the time. That's where another hotel is now, New Modern Hotel. But it was there that it was swelled beyond its boundaries, you know, with honor that night. That was, to me, a great moment. Because he got a chance to see that. Uh, he didn't know about his death. He didn't see the beauty uh, in his death. But he saw the beauty of people coming together for a cause uh, during his lifetime. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about, any other thing that people don't know about that funeral or funeral week uh, that you'd like to, uh, that we should talk about? Yes. Um, Mr. Nixon, I don't think a lot of people know this story. He was the candidate, he wasn't president yet, uh, but it was the, so this was April, so he had been the candidate. Uh, for the party ended up being president. But um, everybody knew that Martin Luther King did not get involved in politics, but he did campaign against Mr. Nixon. There were two times he got involved in politics. There were Goldwater and Nixon. Uh, Mr. Nixon wanted very much to come to Atlanta to call on Mrs. King. And there were those who said no. He called Ralph McGill, the published Atlanta Constitution, and said, do you know how I could get there to see her? He said, no, I can't make it happen, but I've got a good friend who could tell us whether it can or cannot. So he put an emergency call to me and asked me, could I make it happen, or did I think it should not happen? And I said, I'll call you back. I checked with Mrs. King, and some of her advisors said, no, we don't need him to come. And I said, Mrs. King, this is not the moment for politics. If he wants to come, let's 
let him come but give him some parameters like he can't make it a media event. And so we put some stipulations and some conditions like if he'd come unmarked car, come quietly, then she would be open to receive him. He said he didn't matter what the conditions were, he would abide by them. And sure enough, uh, they called me to let him know he'd be there at six o'clock, whatever time it was. He came and I remember the car coming up, it was a, a beige Impala. And I think that's a Chevrolet, I don't know what kind of car it is. But, you know, nondescript in terms of, it wasn't showy. And he, he told us that he and Mrs. Nixon were coming. But when he came, uh, he was by himself with security, of course, but they were low-key. Uh, just one security person was with him in the car. And um, he got out by himself, and I met him at the front door and ushered him back to Mrs. King's bedroom. And um, he thanked me for allowing this, but he said to Mrs. King, he sat right at her, her door, I mean at her bed, and said, um, Mrs. Nixon was coming with him, but one of the girls got sick and she had to suddenly change her plan to go to New York. But I'm here representing the two of us, and we are here to say through, um, we want to assuage our grief by offering scholarships for education for all of your children, not scholarships, want to provide education for all four of your children. We put in the money in the bank, the two of us, and whenever they're ready, we know they're a little ways off, but we now want you to know their money is secure for all four of them. And that was his way of assuaging his grief uh, for this awful moment. Um, and she thanked him, and it was um, no more than a 15-minute visit. But a lot of people didn't know that because he did come quietly. Do you have any pursuit that at all? Yes, I do know that. Um, by the time the children were old enough, because you know the, Yolanda was, I think, 12, 13, 14 years old, uh, by the time they were ready for school, so many people had offered then that I don't think the money was necessary at the moment, but um, they got lots of offers. It was a lot of people's way of saying, let me help. So they had. Um, uh, provisions made. I've always heard that Robert Kennedy and Harry Belafonte and maybe some others picked up a lot of the sort of miscellaneous expenses of the funeral week. Do you know whether that's true? Yes, that is true. But you know, also there was a lot of money came in um, and unfortunately we had some ugly people helping. Uh, we caught people, people sent cash and envelopes and so we had a lot of people around the dining room table opening mail, and we saw people taking open envelopes and then putting money down here, you know, one for her and two for me, kind of thing, we had them removed. But um, even at a moment like that, you got ugliness. But a lot of people sent money uh, just around the world, just saying it was their way, they couldn't come, but let me be a part of this. So a lot of money came in uh, from just people who wanted to express themselves. In the next episode of The Voices of King, we will hear from Dr. King's youngest child, Dr. Bernice King. A special thanks to AJC reporters Rosalind Bentley and Ernie Suggs. Also to Senior Editor of Visuals, Sandra Brown, Senior Managing Editor Mark Wallagor, and our Editor-in-Chief, Kevin Raleigh. Be sure to visit www.ajc.com backslash mlk50 for the AJC's coverage of honoring Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I'm Ryan Horn, and you've been listening to 
the Voices of King. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.